Well, good morning, Peachtree. It is so good for us to get to be together and to celebrate the gift of what it means to worship God as a community of faith. And so thanks for bearing with us as in the midst of the distance, we remain connected spiritually to one another and united to our Father above. Hey, this week obviously has been a huge amount of news coming from my home state of Texas. The absolute frigid temperatures from a storm that blew in on Monday. I mean, these are the types of images that you do not expect coming from central Texas. What they were calling, and this term was a polar vortex. This term was uh, trending all over social media to try to figure out what it is. These absolute Arctic-like temperatures that were pushing all the way down into places that don't normally really see much of a winter. And in the midst of this crisis, there was an incredible spike in demand for the need for energy and for electricity, um, as well as the constriction of what they were able to provide because of these temperatures and the way that the systems weren't able to handle the load of what was there. Um, so you can imagine that, uh, that this was a huge impact on so many people. In fact, for a moment as we begin our sermon, where I'd like to start is kind of what, what you might refer to as an open-eyed prayer. I want to share with you some images and to have you kind of think about what it would be like to be standing in line like at this place here waiting to get some propane for you to be able to have some energy and to be able to cook for your home. Or maybe this image here of what is it like when they're conserving energy in the grocery store by turning off all the lights and to try to do your grocery shopping. My understanding from talking with someone now is that there's nothing in any grocery store at this point in time. Or this image here of thinking of how you could get water in your home such to the point that you get little stalactites of icicles hanging from the ceiling of your home. Or maybe this picture here where this person was so cold with their toes that the only heating element that they had in their home was that of the stove. And so they're trying to warm their feet while they cook their food. And last but not least, this picture here. This is a picture actually from San Antonio, Texas, a Methodist church that was just down the street from the Presbyterian church that I served for many years and attended in college, where someone from the street had a warm place to be able to provide shelter in the midst of this storm. Most of my family and many, many of my friends live in the state of Texas and our prayers go out to them. I know that for my sister and her husband that they had pipe burst in their guest room and they had to quickly move everything out and then shut the water off. So imagine not having electricity as well as not having water. I know that from one of my best friends from college that he has two young children at home and how do you manage the house when you lose electricity like in those types of frigid conditions. And fortunately they had a relative who had an apartment in town that did have electricity. So they had a warm place to sleep or for others who are experiencing incredible hardship in the midst of all of this at the same time as a pandemic. One of our dear friends in Texas got COVID positive test on Saturday and the storm blew in on Sunday night. So imagine trying to juggle all of that at the same time. But what amazed me the most, I mean, I only remember one snowfall really significantly as a child growing up in Texas. 
What amazed me was not so much the scope of the cold or the extent of the damage. Having lived there, it's, it's kind of expected because they're just not prepared for this. What was a surprise to me was how quickly people began to blame. I mean, usually we wait at least until the crisis is over to start pointing our fingers, to start uh, screaming out. And yet what was happening is, is that each side was pointing fingers at one another and ostracizing one another and blaming either unrealistic climate change policies of wind farms in West Texas or that we weren't doing enough about climate change and being ready for this. One side of the aisle blaming the other side of the aisle. All this was happening in real time while the crisis is happening. You would think a crisis like this would, would bring us together. And yet it seems to be tearing us apart. I think we find ourselves in the midst of a conflict spiral that I don't know how best to describe other than just a cycle of condemnation is that we are stuck in this cyclone of blame and a lack of taking responsibility and accountability for ourselves. And the question is, is there anything that can pull us out of the cycle of condemnation that we find ourselves in today? We're in the midst of a series where we are walking through the Gospel of John. We're talking about the life-giving belief that is possible in Jesus and how that changes us and how there is no longer anything like cynicism or emptiness or religiosity or shame or paralysis or hunger. And today we're talking about being no longer condemned. No longer condemned. And to do that, we're looking at John chapter 8. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The presenting issue might have been that of adultery. But there was far more going on in the story. And in fact, I see Jesus disarming the cycle of condemnation. So how does Jesus do this? Let's talk about a couple different ways that Jesus helps us out of the cycle of condemnation. And the first way that he does this here is that we go from using people to learning how to love people. From using people to loving people. We see this in the text 
because this woman becomes a pawn. And so we see in John chapter 8, verse 3, that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. They were not really trying to figure out what was right for this woman and what to do with it. We discovered that this was a trap. And so she was really not the object of the justice and the righteousness and the reconciliation of what needed to happen in this moment. It was that they were using her, they were manipulating her and her situation for their own particular gain. I want to share with you a statue, a statue that is in Spain of a significant military and political and economic leader during the 10th century. This was during a time where the Muslims had come in and had overtaken Spain and Islam was now established in Spain, in particularly that Cordoba region, and that there was a new ruler there. And that this particular region, this ruler had everything he could ever want. And in Arthur Brooks, in a New York Times article telling about this particular leader, imagine living your whole life where everything was a success. Everything that you did basically turned to gold and happened. And yet, reflecting back on his life, this political leader said this. He said, I have now reigned above 50 years in victory or peace, beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, respected by my allies. Riches and honors, power and pleasure have waited on my call, nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. Imagine looking back over one of the most successful, ambitious lives that you could imagine over a thousand years ago. Having anything that you could possibly want anytime that you want it. And yet you look back over your life and you're like, I think I've had two weeks of genuine joy. And so Arthur Brooks gives the summary this way as to why in his research. He puts it like this. He had a formula as he sleepwalked through life. Love things, use people. It is the worldly snake oil peddled by the culture makers from Hollywood to Madison Avenue. But you know in your heart that it is morally disordered and a likely road to misery. You want to be free of the sticky cravings of unhappiness and find a formula for true happiness instead? Simply invert the deadly formula and render it virtuous. Love people. Use things. If we use the people around us, they become pawns or objects. We flatten reality, especially in today's technological age that people become objects to us and we manipulate them and we set them up as straw men. And instead of actually dealing with people as people, we treat them as objects. And that's the first area in which we enter into that cycle of condemnation. This woman who was caught in the act of adultery, she needed love. She didn't need condemnation. She didn't need to be used in some sort of political game. She needed her community to care for her. 
And so that's the first step. And the second step in which Jesus helps us to move past this cycle of condemnation is it happens like this. We go from confirming what I believe to searching for the truth. From confirming what I believe to searching for the truth. In John chapter 8, we see it like this. They were using this question, meaning the religious leaders were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They were trying to cancel Jesus before the cancel culture. They were trying to box him into some sort of trap where either Jesus would be seen as being soft on the law or he would be the kind of person that doesn't have a heart for this woman. This was not a moment where they were looking for the truth or that they were trying to figure out a really tricky part of how you apply rules and the law. No, that's not what they were looking for. They were trying to trap him. They had an agenda. They were wanting to discredit him. And in doing so, they were not only using people as objects, they were furthering that cycle of condemnation. I've been reading a fantastic book recently by a guy by the name of Adam Grant, and it's all about the premise of how do you rethink your life and how important it is for us to be able to not just be stuck in our same old ruts, but for us to actually learn how to rethink. And he says that all of us have kind of these impediments to rethinking in our minds. The impediments are these, what he calls these little inner dictators in your mind and mind, and they are preachers and prosecutors and politicians. These are three different ways, he says, that we get stuck in a particular kind of thinking. Preachers for like advocating for the truth, prosecutors for accusing to find out what is right, and politicians for those, you know, kind of back and forth of trying to uh, do whatever we can to have the status quo. Now, while he's talking about how these kinds of different modes our mind gets stuck in, he warns us in particular with one of the disadvantages to rethinking is because we are so stuck in something that sociologists refer to as confirmation bias. Now, confirmation bias is that thing where our brains are lazy and we don't look for the right answer. We look for the answer that already affirms what we already believe. This is why social media has become such an echo chamber for us to not rethink what we believe or evaluate or have dialogue with other people, but that we're just looking for confirmation of what we already think. Now, what was fascinating to me is he's talking about we have these inner dictators and that we shouldn't be like the preachers and the politicians and the prosecutors in our mind, that we need to open our mind a little more. And so he warns us, he's like, don't just go for affirmation bias. He says, there's a model that you should seek after. You should try to become a scientist. Now, what's funny about this to me is guess what Adam Grant's occupation is? He's a scientist. He's warning us about confirmation bias of not just kind of affirming what you already do or what you already believe. And he says, you don't need to be like these other things. You need to be more like me. You need to be more like a scientist. Now, I know what he intends and what he means by this, but it's amazing to me that someone who's warning us of confirmation bias as a social scientist sets him up as the hero, as a scientist. All of us do this where we get stuck in our mental ruts and we're not looking to, to others or to God to challenge our beliefs. 
I mean, it's, it's so hard for us to read the Bible with integrity and with eyes because if you read the Bible, it's going to challenge what you believe. It's going to expose your idolatry. There's no way that in reading the Bible that we won't be challenged to the point of saying, hey, I, I think I've had this wrong. The Bible refers to this as repentance, to turn around in our minds and in our thinking. And so you and I have been stuck in this cycle of condemnation in part because we're just looking for people to affirm what we think. That's what the religious leaders were doing in Jesus' day and age. And we can be stuck in that same cycle as well if we're not careful. But Jesus teaches us to love people, not use them. He teaches us to seek the truth. And he tells us that the truth shall set us free in John chapter 8, verse 32. That the truth shall set us free. It's not having your, your beliefs affirmed doesn't set you free. No, no, no. You need the truth. And so we love people. We search for the truth. And thirdly, the way out of this cycle of condemnation via Jesus is this. You go from you are the problem to all of us are the problem. Scripture tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in this particular passage, Jesus has this haunting moment where he challenges the religious leaders in the crowds, the mob mentality, the Twitter storm of his day. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. They were about to engage in an honor killing. And they were doing so not because they thought it was right or they were protecting the community, but because they wanted to trap Jesus. This is the beginning of Lent, that 40-day journey where we, uh, starting on Ash Wednesday of this week, make our journey to the cross. And the goal isn't to feel bad about yourself, to feel sorry for yourself. The goal is to be honest. And in our honesty, we have to recognize like the crowds, like the mob in this story, it's not that this woman is the problem. It's that we're no different from this woman. That all of us are sinners. All of us need God's grace. And so one by one, they kept throwing down their stones, starting with the oldest to the youngest. Why the oldest first? Because their sins resume were longer. And they recognized more quickly that they were in no position to judge. In a book by Philip Yancey called Vanishing Grace, he tells the true story of interviewing a pastor in the Chicago area, the pastor who had been a soldier during World War II and went to Dachau, one of the concentration camps, and was there as soon as the war was over to arrest the SS officers in addition to, to help to do the cleanup and if there was any rescue at that concentration camp. When they got there, he was amazed by the carnage, the horrible nature of the evil that had happened. One of his fellow soldiers, Chuck, was in charge of taking a group of Nazi soldiers who were at the concentration camp away towards a place where they were supposed to be arrested and get due process. And yet when Chuck took a few steps outside the, the camp, 
with all of those Nazi officers in front of them. He just shot them in cold blood and came back leering and saying they tried to run away. This pastor who started out as a soldier, that was the moment for him when his life changed. And he wrote this. I could not absorb such a scene. I did not even know that such absolute evil existed. But when I saw it, I knew beyond doubt I must be spend my life serving whatever opposed such evil, serving God. And then came the incident with Chuck. I had a nauseating fear that the captain might call on me to escort the next group of SS guards. And an even more dread fear that if he did, I might do the same thing as Chuck. The beast that was within those guards was also within me. The beast that was within those guards was also in me. Those who are without sin may throw the first stone. In that rhetorical question, none of us have the authority to take another life like that. But that beast of anger, of hurt, that lies within all of us. There but for the grace of God go I. And so Jesus tells us that we're not to use people, we're to love them. He teaches us that we're not to just confirm what we believe, but also to figure out what is true. The third realization is for us to recognize that it's not, hey, you're a problem or you're a sinner, but that it's all of us that are a part of the problem. And finally, according to this passage, the way that Jesus breaks this cycle of condemnation, it's like this. From I'm free to do what I want to I am free to follow Jesus. When our daughters were younger, um, we would play a lot of games. I'm a huge game guy. Uh, my family really makes fun of me because I never, ever let my daughters win, no matter how old they were, win at any game. I won't tell you which daughter it was, but we were sitting on the floor this one time playing a game. And while we were playing a game, uh, she was trying to change the rules of the game as we're playing the game. And so the game obviously would become chaotic. And I decided to teach her a little lesson by allowing her to change the rules however she wanted to. And of course, she kept winning the game. She would change the rules and all of a sudden she would win. And what was interesting was to watch the little light bulb go above that little head. And that is this, that having the ability to get whatever you want, being completely free to do whatever you want, that there wasn't actually any joy in it. It was a hollow victory. It wasn't true. That true freedom is not freedom from all constraints, according to the gospel. True freedom is having the right constraints and knowing how to live well within them. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. We're only free in Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 12, the way that Jesus 
gives this to us right after the story. I love how this story ends and then goes right into this famous verse. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The goal for us is not to be free to do whatever we want. The goal for us is to be free to follow Jesus. Only in following him do we find true freedom. Freedom to do the good. Freedom to do the will of God. That's freedom. Freedom to do whatever you want, even though it be wrong, is is not genuine freedom. And it won't bring any lasting joy. The way that this story ends haunts me because it takes me all the way back to when I was in high school. I was on an acting troupe for a church camp and I was at a point where I wasn't even really sure that I believed any of this anymore. At this particular camp, I was cast in the role of Jesus. And one of the Bible stories that we were called to act out was this story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. And I remember the absolute amazement of people dropping the stones who were the fellow actors and the woman being lifted up by me as the character. And I still remember the words, woman, where are your accusers? Does no one accuse you? And looking around, she said, no one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. And just with absolute silence, she walked out through the crowd of the students who were there for this particular lesson, just walking through in complete silence. I wasn't even sure I really believed this person anymore. But the absolute wisdom and majesty of neither condoning the behavior nor condemning the person. Who can do that? Who can do that but Jesus? I don't know anything that will break the cycle that we're found in today but the person of Jesus. And even in the midst of our hesitancy, even in our doubt, Only he can help us to go from using people to loving them, from being stuck in our own thoughts to rethinking to pursuing the truth, to becoming the kind of community, even as a church, by saying, hey, it's not about those people or those people or you who are the problem. It's about all of us, that we're all in this together. And that Jesus gives us the capacity for what real freedom looks like. I still remember what the follow-up Bible passage was to that acting troupe and the small group that we would go into afterwards from that youth event. It was from Romans 8, talking about how there is no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. The condemnation is gone. The cycle is broken. Grace is here. New life, new freedom, new relationships, new ways of thinking, new humility and honesty, only available from this man.
And so as I prepare to lead you in a prayer, I wonder if you've considered the majesty of this teacher, this leader, this person. He has the capacity to forgive sins. And whether you're more like the people in the crowd or the religious leaders looking down, promoting the cycle of condemnation, or whether you feel more like the woman caught in the midst of all of those things, feeling the condemnation, he's here to break that cycle. He's here to rip that apart and to give us a new possibility and a new life. And so regardless of where you find yourself in this drama, let's pray together. Eternal God, in the midst of storms of this life, there is a storm of our own making. It is a cyclone and a cycle of blame, of discrediting, of pushing away, of pointing of fingers, of condemnation. Father, we are swept up into that as contributors as well as recipients. And I don't know of any other force, any other leader, any other person who can do anything about that except for in and through you. And so as your followers, will you instill within us that we become these little condemnation cycle breakers and that we will learn that the beast of our sinfulness lives within us and yet your grace calls us and frees us to live for more. Thank you, God, that you give us a new model and ways to live and to lead and to love. So help us to find the freedom that can only come from you and finds its culmination in you. May we put our trust in you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.